please turn your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 6. We're entering a, a new section of the book. We've, in the first five chapters, been dealing with Israel as they are getting ready to engage in the campaign that God has called them to wage in Canaan. And now, as we come to chapter 6, we're in this new section, chapters 6 through 12, as the people engage in those conquests that God has, has called them to engage in as we look at obedience and God's kingdom promises in chapters 6 through 12. And as we look at chapter 6, we're going to talk about obedience and salvation. And so if you're, if you're able to, if you're able to, uh, would you please stand with me as we read chapter 6 together? I'll, I'll read a portion of it and then you can sit down and I'll read the rest of the chapter. And uh, if you're uh, looking at your text, we're, look, we're reading from the English Standard Version uh, this morning. We read this in beginning in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march round the city, all the men of war going round the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. The priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march round the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Verse 8. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. And so he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going round it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched round the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. You may be seated as I continue to read. Verse 15, on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. 
The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And Father, we again, as as Kevin prayed, we would ask for you to be gracious to us this morning And open your word to us as we study it together. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. As a parent, I've I've often, uh, as shocking as this may may sound, I've often seen my children disobey. And I've been a parent long enough to see them disobey at kind of different stages of life. When our children were, were very young and kind of beginning to crawl Oftentimes, the, the children would, would be very fascinated with outlets, so wall sockets. and you, They'd crawl, and they'd, they'd look at the socket, and we, they knew they weren't supposed to do it. You could you'd see in their, their faces a realization, I know I shouldn't be touching this because Dad has told me not to, and, and every time he sees me do it, I get a little swat on the hand, but socket, so... So enticing, and they look at you, and they look at the socket, and the hand goes up for it. And I can remember thinking, why? Just asking that question, why are you doing this? They they get older, and the disobedience maybe it changes in, in some of the ways that it manifests itself. We have we have six cookies one evening, and and. There's six people in the family, and we've told the children, okay, it's, the, the cookies are for after dinner, and you come by before dinner, and you see five cookies there, and, and you think, why? I mean, why did you, you knew, we can do math, and we see the crumbs all over your face, and the chocolate, and you're chewing, I mean, 
why would you do this? The, the, the children get older. We, we tell them, okay, let's empty the dishwasher before going to bed, or let's make sure that homework is done before you go hang out with your friends, and, and, and it doesn't happen. And, and, and they know that we're going to know that they didn't do that. And when we, when we discover it, the, the question I, I ask myself, and I ask myself this continually, why? Like, why would you do this? And I don't just ask myself that question. Sometimes I ask my children that question. As I've mentioned before, my, my daughter who does impersonations uh, does this impersonation of me to her siblings. I've, I've caught her doing it sometimes. Uh, hey, guys, who am I? Children, help me understand why are you so terrible, you know? <laughs> and oftentimes it's because, Dad, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know why. But that, that's, a, that's the same question I could ask myself. Daniel, why? You, you know what happens when you sin. You, you know what happens when you're disobedient to the Lord. Why? Now, the good thing is that the Scripture tells us fundamentally the answer to that question of, of why. If I could peer into my, my child's soul at the moment they're, they're crawling toward that outlet and looking at me and looking at that outlet and just reaching up the hand to, to touch the outlet, I, I, know, I know biblically, I know theologically why they are sinning. I know why I sin. And ultimately, foundationally, the reason is, you know what it is, right? It's unbelief. My child doesn't believe what God says. I don't believe what God says about himself, about sin, about the consequences. I, I, I don't believe. Foundationally, I sin because I don't believe. Now, sometimes I, I don't believe because I don't know. Maybe sometimes a person sins and they, they don't know what God has said. They don't, they don't believe him because they can't because they don't know what God has said. Sometimes, sometimes I, I know what God has said, but I, I actively try to, to forget that I know what God has said. I'm, I'm, I'm angry. I want to lose my temper. And I know what God has said about the anger of man not achieving the righteousness of God. But I, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm trying not to remember that so I can go ahead and lose my temper. Sometimes, sometimes I, I know what God has said. I, I just simply, consciously think, you know what? I, I, I don't believe him. I, I disagree. A young person is, is, is struggling with pornography and they, they believe, okay, I know what God has said about, about this, and, and, but I don't believe that he and obedience to him is, is better than the, the joy that I'm going to get by, by looking at these images on a, on a computer screen. I, I don't believe that. Ultimately, we see that our problem with sin is, is our unbelief. And in this passage, in Joshua chapter 6, we see the people of God believing what God says is true. We see them then acting on that obedience, and we see them experiencing that the fruit of that obedience, God's salvation, salvation from God's wrath, being the fruit of that, that obedience in the life of Rahab, 
We see that faith is the foundation of obedience, and a person who has faith is going to walk in obedience and experience the joy of God's salvation. In fact, here's kind of the main idea that I want us to to think through together this morning. Biblical faith, as we enter into this this section of Joshua dealing with obedience, here's, here's what I want us to think about in Joshua 6. Biblical faith produces the obedience that the Spirit uses in my life to assure me that I will experience the joy of God's salvation. Biblical faith produces the obedience that the Spirit uses to assure me that I will experience the joy of God's salvation. That's kind of a long statement, right? What are we saying? We're saying true biblical faith, that the faith is, as Scripture describes faith, the faith that I have in, in Christ, the faith that I, I have in, in believing what God says is true about His Son, Jesus Christ, and placing my trust in Him, that faith is going to produce obedience. And, and God is going to use the obedience that that faith produces to assure me that I am going to experience the joy of His salvation. I have faith. It leads to my obedience and it gives me assurance. We're going to kind of walk through this as we look at this section of Scripture together this morning. Let's start with this idea. Here's the first thing I want us to think about as we think about this, this main idea that biblical faith produces the obedience that the Spirit uses to assure me that I'll experience the joy of God's salvation. Here's the first truth that I want us to look at, or the first thing I want us to think about. Number one, let's think about the foundation of obedience. We see that the foundation of obedience is faith. The foundation of obedience is faith. Look at the text with me, if you would. We begin here in verses 1 through 7, and we see a series of of three sets of instructions, right? Verse 1 kind of sets the scene. Remember, the people have gone across the Jordan River. They're getting ready to invade the land. They're outside. They're near Jericho. And there are three sets of instructions that are given. First, God talks to Joshua. And what does he say? The city is, is, uh, is shut up. People can't go out. People can't get in. And this first set of instruction, God talks to Joshua. And what does he say? Joshua, you're to march around the city. You're to march around the city, all the men of war, once a day for six days. He also tells Joshua to take these seven priests, and the, the seven priests are to have seven trumpets, and they're to go before the ark of the Lord. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city not just one time, but seven times. And then the trumpets are going to be blown, and there's going to be a, a loud uh, last blow of the ram's horn, and then everyone is going to shout. When everyone shouts, the walls of Jericho are going to come down, and then everyone's to go into the city and conquer it. Joshua gets that instruction from God, and then we see in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse, um, verse 6, Joshua then talks to the priest, and that's a, the second set of instructions that you see given in this passage. He tells them, take up the ark of the covenant, that the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And then the third set of instruction, verse 7, he tells the people, okay, you're to go forward in your march, and the armed men are to go before the ark of the Lord. Now, what do we see? Here's the picture. 
they're to march around this city, and this, this city is, we've, we've talked about the kind of the dimensions of the city before. This is kind of like an area, if you, if you go out to the, the farmhouse and our church building, this would kind of be like walking around our, our church building and then the counseling center and the farmhouse. It'd be, it'd be about that, roughly about that size, maybe a, a little bit larger. And they're to, to walk around that, that area and the, the first people are to be these armed men of war. Then there's to be these seven priests with the horns. And then the Ark of the Lord. Notice how many times he mentions the Ark. The Ark is the, the central thing here. It's, it represents the, the presence of God. And so he talks about the, the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant. And the last thing you see in verse 7, the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of Yahweh, God's presence. And then we see later there to be some other armed people, kind of a rear guard behind that ark. So that's, that's kind of the scene. And they're to walk, march around this city. They do it once a day for six days and then seven days. And when they're marching, there's the, the trumpets going, and there's that last blast of the ram's horn. That's the picture. Now, what's missing What, what do you not see in the instructions that God gives Joshua, that Joshua gives a priest, and then that Joshua gives a people? There's no military strategy here, right? I mean, if you're someone who says, you know what, someday I would like to conquer a city like Jericho, what should I do? Uh, what's the strategy? There's, there's no military strategy listed here. There's no battle plan. What is... Central to the text is that God's presence is the the cause of victory here. God's presence is what's going to bring about success. And of course, this is true in all areas of ministry, right? on, On Friday, Friday, 12 years ago Friday, I was on sabbatical. I saw a, a picture of, of a, a whiteboard that I was working on 12 years ago on, on sabbatical. And I had, I was, we were thinking about the church plan. I was kind of just coming out with all sorts of ideas. You know, what sort of mission statement or purpose statement should we have? And what sort of different things should we do for these ministries and that? I, I had all sorts of acronyms going. Like, I, I have no idea what this means, but I had the acronym WATER on the side of the whiteboard. And it said, you know, like, worship authority, um, tr- I don't trust, and evangelism for the E, and then there was the R was left blank. And, and I was like, what happened there? Did I think that water was just a good word for an act? I, what was I thinking? I don't know. The purpose statement, our purpose statement was on there, but like a lot of different versions of it, and it was funny. Anyway, um, as, as I think about the last 11 years, I think, wow, how successful has my water acronym been at, at, at enacting change in, in people's lives? It's, it's worthless, right? Those things, that the things that we do, the things we plan, they can have some limited benefit, but if, but if the Lord doesn't breathe into a ministry, if the Lord doesn't breathe into a person's life, it is absolutely worthless. And what becomes very clear as, as this text goes on is that, look, this is, this is God's battle. Here's the picture. I'm going to do this thing, and you are here to witness my work. And then look what happens next in the passage. In verses 8 through 14, what happens? Look at how verse 8 begins. It says, and just as Joshua had commanded the people, they obey. 
the obedience that the people engage in is, is exactly what Joshua had told them to do, what God had told them to do through Joshua, and they obey, and they obey exactly. Now, and again, and again, you see the focus on the ark in the text. The whole scene is about God conquering. They continue to obey day after day after day. As you come to verse 14, it says at the very end, so they did for six days. For six days, they get prepared, they march around the city, and they do exactly what Joshua and God have told them to do. The question is, why? Why did they do that? If their goal is to conquer the land, this, this doesn't seem like a very, from, from a human perspective, this is not the strategy you, you would employ, right? Why did they do this? They, they did this because they believed that what God was saying was true. They, they believed that God's statement about himself, about his warnings, about his promises, they believed that those things were true. Yesterday, I don't know if you saw this, but, but yesterday the, the two-hour uh, marathon was broken. I, I don't know how the right way to say it. Technically, it wasn't broken because there was a pace car or whatever, but someone ran the distance of a marathon, 26.2 miles, for the first time in less than two hours. Which, you know, I'm running a marathon in a, in a couple weeks, and that takes a lot of weight off me because that pressure is gone. You know, it's, it's been done. Right. No, I, I've ne- I've, I, I struggled the first couple times uh, we ran a marathon. I, I struggled to complete that distance in twice that amount of time. I, four hours seemed like a very aggressive goal for me. Uh, the first couple times. In fact, I, I can remember training and, and thinking, okay, I need to run. The, the, the guy that, that broke the record, he was running like just a little over four and a half minute miles. Yeah, for 26.2 miles. I've never, I've never done that once. I don't know what that feels like. But dude, 26, that's amazing. But I, I was trying to, to run whatever twice that is. I, I was like, okay, that's, that's the, the pace I need to run per mile. And so whenever I was training those first couple times, uh, we, we did that I was saying, okay, well, if that's, the, if that's the speed I need to run, I need to, every time I go out there and, and train, I need to be running at least that fast because if I'm going to run that for 26 miles, I need to be able to run it for three miles. And so every time I got out, I was, I was running that. Someone told me, uh, some, read some, some material and some people who were uh, run marathons before said, no, 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 you need to run some slow miles and you need to run some fast miles. And I heard that instruction, and you know what I thought? I thought, I disagree. I mean, I haven't run since ninth grade, and, and even then not very well, but I think I know a little bit better than you what I need to do. What, what you're say, saying sounds crazy. And so when I, I didn't listen, I didn't listen, and I trained and ran and just went terribly, right? I went back, said, you know what, maybe, um, maybe I'm, I'm not as smart as I think I am. I, I believed what these people who had done uh, these, these runs successfully said, and so I, I, I changed how I was training and was able to, to, to run more successfully. But it wasn't until I believed them that I acted upon that belief, right? I didn't change how I acted until I believed what they were telling me was true. Now, why is faith then, 
Why is faith essential to obedience? Why is the foundation of obedience faith? Well, let's, let's make sure we understand what we mean when we say the word faith. When we say the word faith, we don't just mean wishful thinking. We're not just talking about hopes and, and dreams. You know, we're saying, okay, I, I, I believe in myself. That's not what faith is. I can't say, you know what, I, I have faith that I can also run a, a sub two-hour marathon. I, I believe it with all my heart. That's not biblical faith. That's, that's delusion, right? It's fantasy. Sometimes when we use the word faith, that's what we mean. You know, I, I have faith. You know, I'm a, I'm a young person, I'm a young lady, and I, I just have faith that this young man is going to be a great man of God. I mean, I know that he's not involved in anything spiritually now, but I have faith in God's going to, to, to reward that faith, and so I should pursue a relationship with him. That's, that's delusion. That's not what the Scripture describes as faith. Why is faith essential to obedience? Well, here's how the Scripture describes faith. When the scripture talks about faith, there are at least three things that are true of a person who has faith. A person who has biblical faith has, has knowledge, they have belief, and they have trust. They have knowledge, they have belief, and they have trust. In other words, they, when a person has biblical faith, they know some things to be true. A, a person who's a believer knows some truths about Jesus Christ. They, they know that Jesus Christ, a person who's a Christian, doesn't just say, oh, I believe in the name of Jesus. The person who believes in Jesus Christ biblically knows some things about him. They know that Jesus Christ came as the Son of God, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross in their place and rose from the dead and is, a, is alive today. A person who's going to become a Christian and have biblical faith needs to know that. That's knowledge. And then there's also belief. We can't just know those facts. We have to believe them to be true. A person who says, you know, I, I know the story about Jesus. I just don't believe that he really rose from the dead. That person is not a Christian. They don't have biblical faith because they don't believe those things to be true. But a person can also know some things and believe some things to be true and still not be a Christian. Did you know that? Demons know truths about Jesus. They believe that those things that they know about Jesus are true, and yet they are certainly not saved by biblical faith. Why? Because they have not trusted in Christ. The same is true for many of us. We know some things, we think that they're true, but we haven't trusted in Jesus Christ for our eternal life, placing our, our confidence not in our own works, but in him for salvation. Now, that's biblical faith. And that type of faith is our foundation if we're going to hope to be obedient to God. Why? Why? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is Seen was not made out of things that are visible. Later in verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. Why? Because whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the, the person who's going to place their faith in Jesus Christ is going to be a person who believes that he exists and that placing their faith in Christ is the only way to receive the rewards that God offers in this life and the next. Later in Hebrews 11, listen to what it says. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, 
Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome. She had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, we see in Hebrews that our ability to walk in obedience is, is based upon belief. The people, the, the walls of Jericho came down because of faith late, earlier in the book of Hebrews. We read this, Hebrews 3, To whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And then he, so he says they, they were disobedient, and they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Dis- disobedience and unbelief are, are linked there. They're, they're, they're related to one another. The person who is disobedient is a person who has unbelief. Now, whatever area and whatever sin that you and I are struggling with, we know that ultimately what's happening, what's happening is that I'm exhibiting my lack of belief. I'm a parent and I, I choose not to be obedient to the Lord in terms of discipling my children. Why am I disobedient? Why do I decide to lose my temper with my children? Ultimately, it's because I do not believe what God has said is true. I'm struggling with, with selfishness, and I, I know that I'm supposed to act sacrificially, and yet... As, as I come into the moment where, where it's choosing between me and, and the person I'm supposed to be serving, I say, you know what? I know what God has said about how I'm supposed to relate to this person, but I, I'm just going to choose not to do that. Why am I doing that? Because I don't believe what God has said is true about the joy of obedience, about the danger of sin. We mentioned pornography. The person who's, who's embroiled in, a, in a, a fight with pornography is embroiled in a fight of faith. Am I going to believe, and this, if we apply to so many different areas of sin, am I going to believe that the joy that is found in Christ is superior to the joy that I'm going to find in sin? And as I succumb to sin, I demonstrate I don't believe what God says about where joy is to be found. The foundation of my obedience to God is faith. I believe what God has said about himself. I believe what God has said about me. I believe what God has said about where joy is to be found. Here in Joshua 6, the people believe what God has said, and so they're obedient. Well, now let's talk about the fruit of obedience. So the foundation of obedience is what? It's, it's faith. What about the fruit of obedience? The fruit of obedience we encounter in verses 15 through 27. And the fruit of obedience we see is salvation. Now, this might, you know, some alarms are going off for some of us. Right? Okay, well, hold on, Daniel. What are you saying? Are you saying that salvation is caused by my obedience? Are you saying that I'm justified by my works and not by faith? Absolutely not. Galatians, we've been through Galatians over the last year. We are crystal clear. We are, how are we saved? How are we justified? Why does God declare us righteous? He does not declare us righteous because of our works. He doesn't declare us righteous because of our obedience. He declares us righteous because of Christ's obedience. How do we get Christ's obedience? One way, one way only. The means through which we get that is faith. 
We are saved by God's grace. And the way we receive God's grace, that the means that we do that is through our, our faith. We trust in him, and when we do that, we receive, we receive righteousness, and the fruit is obedience. But, or let me say, and, and what happens? When we have faith, when we receive that gift of eternal life, we begin to have, by God's grace, greater ability to walk in obedience to him. Whereas before we had none, now we have God continuing to work for us. In fact, this, this word salvation, you can kind of put it in, in this understanding. It's, it's, a, it's a continual salvation. It's a continual deliverance. The fruit of obedience is God gives me the ability by faith to be obedient. What happens? I'm, I'm continually saved from the power of sin. I'm continually saved from the, the destruction that sin brings about in my life. And God and the life of the believer continues to bring them until the fullness of salvation is realized in eternity. Now, here, here's what I want you to see. Look, look at verses 15 through 21. Let's, let's see this in the life of Rahab. The, 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 the connection between her obedience brought on by her faith and the salvation that she receives. First of all, in verses 15 through 21, we see that Rahab faced an incredible danger, the danger of judgment. And we're, not gonna, we're gonna talk more about this next week as we look at chapters seven and eight. We're gonna look at chapters seven and eight next week. But, but look at what happens in the, the next part of this passage, the destruction that Rahab herself could have experienced. Verse 15 says it's the seventh day. This time they walk, march around the city seven times. The trumpet is blown, the, the ram's horn are blown. The people shout, and as, as Josh was talking about what they're to do, it's, I think what is happening here is the, the narrator is giving us some words that Joshua had probably spoken earlier. Look at verse 17. He says, uh, The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now there's a word, kind of a, a, a root word that's used both in that word we see for devotion, that word we see translated destruction. Both devotion and destruction kind of come from the same root word, and there's a verb form of it, there's a noun form of it, but essentially, things can be devoted to God, and some things are devoted to God to such an an extent that they're they're destroyed, that they're, they're beyond the ability to be recovered. Physical destruction is the ultimate manifestation of something being devoted to God. And what Joshua is saying here is that the, this city is devoted to destruction. It's, it's going to be completely annihilated. Only some of the things are going to be saved, and those things themselves are not for the people to have. They're for the Lord. And the, the picture here of destruction is a, is a picture that you might find very troubling. We're going to talk more about this next week, Lord willing, but, but Deuteronomy 20 is kind of a backdrop to this passage. God tells Moses in the cities of these people that, or Moses is telling the people, in the cities of these people that Yahweh, the Lord your God, has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall 
devote them to complete destruction. It's the same phrase there. And then it talks about all the people that are there. Now, we're going to talk about why God did this and, and how we should respond to this. But what do we see as we think about this in relationship to Rahab? We see that the wrath of the people of Jericho are about to face, that the fate that they're about to endure is a terrible one. It causes me, as I read it, it, ca- it forces me to think about the reality of sin and, and the consequences for sin for those who are not in Christ. And by the, way, by the way, just a little bit of a sneak preview of what we're going to talk about next week. Why does anyone have the ability to escape a wrath like this? Well, it's because of Christ, right? And, and who was the person who was also designated for destruction? Who is the, the person, uh, by God's grace, who, who bore the ultimate wrath? Well, it's, it's Christ. He's the, the person who receives God's wrath. He's the object of the ban, of the, the object of destruction, the one devoted to destruction. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if we deny the, the horribleness, if we deny the horrible consequences of sin, we fail to see the beauty of Christ's death in our place. Now in Christ, we put to death sin in all aspects of immorality. There can be no compromise with sin in our life, just as there's no compromise with sin here. But again, I'm getting into next week. Here's what I want you to see here. Rahab was in danger. The destruction of the city is absolute. It says they captured the city, verse 20. Then verse 21, they devoted all in the city to destruction, men, women, Young, old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But Rahab receives salvation. Verses 22 through 24 talk about the, the messengers being the ones who are involved in rescuing her. So it's kind of a, a very sweet picture. And then in verse 25, there's this, there's this beautiful picture as well of Rahab and her family and all of her being saved and I love the phrase, and she's lived in Israel to this day. And so from the time that the person is writing this, Rahab and her descendants still are part of the people of God. She's been removed from the people devoted to destruction, and by God's grace, she is now part of the people of God. But listen to what happens next. Listen to the phrase that we encounter next. Let me me start again the beginning of the sentence. And, And this should... This should kind of jar you a little bit. It says, And she has lived in Israel to this day because. Because why? Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, why does it say she's saved because of, because of that? Because of her hiding the messengers. Was Rahab saved by her works? Did Rahab receive salvation and entrance into the community of God because of her works? If you think Rahab was saved by works, well, let's not do a poll. 
Was Rahab saved by works? Remember what happened in Joshua 2? What did she do? She comes to the messengers and she says, look, here are the things that I know about God. Remember what what faith is? I I know these things to be true about God. I I know that he's the one who rescued you guys. I know know that the, the judgment is coming. I I don't just know these things. I believe them to be true. I I think this is going to happen. And I have no ability to rescue myself. And now, then what does she do? She trusts. She says, now please, I'm throwing myself upon the mercy of of Yahweh God. Please deliver me and my family. She, She trusts. She recognizes I have no ability to save myself. She becomes, through faith, she becomes part of the people of God. And then what happens? She, she's obedient. Obedience is the fruit of that faith in her life. She's not saved because of her obedience. The obedience is the natural outworking of that faith that, that God has worked within her. But what if she had disobeyed? That's kind of a mind, mind twister, right? Well, what, if, what if she had disobeyed? Well, text seems clear. If she had disobeyed, she would not have been saved. If she had failed to hide the messengers, if she had not tied the, the cord outside her, the, uh, the, the, the wall there, she, she would have been destroyed. Well, did work save her? No. Saved by faith. But faith produced obedience. Now, what about you and me? There are warnings in Scripture for you and me if we do not see obedience in our lives. Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus is describing the last days, he says that people are going to deliver, they're going to deliver you up to tribulation. They're going to put you to death. You're going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But who's going to be saved? He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, well, Daniel, is that, is that works-based salvation? No, it's not. But what it means is this. The foundation of obedience is faith. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive eternal life. And then fruit, God works the fruit of obedience in our lives. And what happens? We persevere until the end. Not because we're so special. Not because we are somehow better than other people but because of God's gracious work of faith in our lives. So so here's here's the caution I have for us. Here's the word of warning. Salvation is not earned. It's a gift of God. We receive by faith. But if you can look at your life this morning and you see no desire for obedience... You see no desire to to walk in obedience to the Lord. You see no desire to to walk in discipleship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see no desire for those things, no no fruit of obedience in your life. That should be a cause of grave concern. In fact, if if you were to come to me and say, look, Daniel, um, I, I I uh, I don't love being obedient to God. I don't desire to be obedient to God. And I, I think I'm a Christian because when I was, you know, Six years old, I, I prayed a prayer and I, and I signed a piece of paper, so I think I'm a believer, but man, I do not want to walk the Christian life. I have no desire to be involved with the people of God. I, I said, boy, that, that's a warning, right? Let's, let's think through this. Do you, do you know who God is? 
Do you believe the things that God has said are, are true, are actually true, and are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? And before you say, yeah, of course I'm trusting the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation, ask yourself, does your life reflect the reality of a person who truly trusts in Jesus Christ for their eternal life? Biblical faith produces the obedience that the Spirit uses to assure me that I will experience the joy of God's salvation. As I believe what God says is true, the Spirit produces obedience through that faith. And then the Spirit of God assures me, look, you are going to experience the joy of God's salvation as, as, as you see this desire for obedience. Now, some of you have tender conscience, a tender conscience, and I want I want to just encourage you as well. Look, the, the, the presence of sin in our life is not a sign that we're not a believer, right? You say, well, I, have, you know, I struggle with this. Yeah, that's good. It's good to acknowledge that. And we'll talk about repentance uh, next week as well. I, I'm, really, I'm really putting a lot on next week. I don't know if we'll get to all that. But here's what we see this morning. Here's what we see this morning. We see a picture in Joshua 6 of people who believe truths about God and then acted in obedience to those truths and experienced God's salvation. May that be true for each of us. May we believe the things that God has said are true as a foundation for our obedience, and may we actually be obedient, and by God's grace working in us, experience the joy of the assurance of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in our life, for the, the salvation you bring about through your Son, Jesus we trust in him this morning. We trust that you will continue to, to save us through our faith in him and him alone. We pray that in your kindness we would experience the, the joy of assurance, walking in perfect confidence before you. And Father, we recognize this morning our obedience is not what it needs to be. And so we trust in you as we continue to repent, we continue to trust in you to, to work out our salvation, our continued deliverance from sin as we look forward to our ultimate salvation that is absolutely sure because our confidence is not in ourselves but in your son Jesus. And we pray these words in his name. Amen.